talking about or talking our way through uh, the meaning of the Declaration of Independence, in particular the first two paragraphs, uh, maybe the last paragraph. Uh, we'll pick it up there, make our way through that paragraph, that second one. Oh, we've got one announcement. No, Lucas, it's just very hard to Ah, I have to project even more. Should I use this thing again? Hello? This work? Oh, man, i got to walk around with this thing again. Yeah, we're going to try and get it put through the house later on. You guys could hear Chris, but you couldn't hear me. Well, I've never been accused of someone that I couldn't, that you couldn't hear. Fair enough. All right, we're going to be looking at this booklet, uh, the Declaration of Independence, picking up our conversation uh, in that second paragraph there, uh, but also have your... Founders Constitution, Volume 1. Uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, we had you, uh, we assigned the readings that we did for this session, Session 3 in the Founders Constitution, so that you could see what was in the air, as it were, what the, what the various uh, ways of talking about concepts like state of nature, laws of nature, nature's God, rights, consent, uh, what this all looked like. It wasn't just in the Declaration of Independence. It was in a number of other uh, documents, a number of other statements and writings of the period. Um, what, I, what I'll do first, though, is what I want us to do first is to actually just keep explicating uh, the Declaration, especially that second paragraph. And then when we're done with that, then we'll look back uh, at the Founders' Constitution. Uh, I think we'll have time to do that. And uh, see a further... Expounding uh, on these ideas, and also notice you, what you probably did when you did the reading: uh, the shift that takes place between uh, 1774 and 7576, uh, the kinds of arguments that were being made uh, while we were still trying to restore harmonious relationship with Mother England, and then when we make the decisive break and decide uh, to go our own way, when the argument became less than a, a redress of grievances and more an argument for you know, assuming among the powers of the earth that separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle us. So, uh, yesterday I left us with a question, I think. Uh, the problem is I don't remember what that question was. Does anybody <laughs> remember the last thing I said uh, last night? Was it, uh, let's see here. We were talking about self-evidence and I think we were approaching the subject of what it means to say that all men are created equal, but I'm going to like Gary from Florida to continue Chris's mode of operation here. Just right. from Lexington. Um, was that the question? And you got an answer for us? No. Ah, I sent you up. <laughs> the philosophic cause. Uh, we talked about, well, let me just ask this quick question. Concept of self evidence, are you guys comfortable with? Explaining that notion uh, to students, what it means that something is self-evident, did it help that reference to Federalist 31, those first few sentences where he talks about when something uh, ought to be evident to every self isn't, it's either, you know, there's something uh, occluding their view, as it were, there's something that's obstructing uh, the immediate apprehension, it, it, it commands the ascent of the mind. Um, I think about, for example, in geometry, uh, how we know that a circle is a circle, or a triangle is a circle, or in some sense, even more importantly, the difference between a circle and a triangle. It's not because your instructors drew a thousand circles and you finally said, oh, I get it. 
circle. Okay. Uh, in a way, you were taught maybe its properties. You were taught, uh, in particular, its label. What are we going to call it? But for example, if you pulled out a chalkboard at the United Nations, right? Many different languages spoken, of course. Different cultures, religions, political uh, regimes represented. But if you went up to a chalkboard and drew a triangle, what would every person in that assembly immediately apprehend? And I have to think about when they saw that figure. What would they say in their mind? Triangle. <laughs> they would say triangle, right? Or if you drew a circle, they would say circle. You, you wouldn't have to uh, explain it. Now the question is, how did that happen? How did your mind immediately, you know, notice the word that I keep using, apprehend. You don't assume or hypothesize that it's a triangle or it's a circle, right? Your mind immediately knows what it is simply by looking at it. We're making, or the, the Second Continental Congress is making a similar argument in the, the Declaration of Independence, that there are certain things in the moral realm, in the human realm, that human beings, if they're being honest, right, if they aren't mentally deranged, right, disorders in the organs of perception, as Hamilton euphemistically puts it, uh, as long as no strong interest, passion, or, big one, prejudice, right, which is not just racial, it, I, I would think probably the, the principal one at that time would be religious. Right? Some superstition interfering. If those things aren't operating, you'll know the truth as long as you, you understand the terms. Uh, so let's look at those terms. What's the first truth that's claimed by the Americans to be self-evident? All men are created equal. Now, look around this room. Um, are there ways in which we are immediately, it's immediately apparent we're not equal? Yes, clearly some of us are prettier than others. Just, I, I just noticed that. I thought that was manifest. Uh, height, right? size, color. There's a number of ways in which, it, when we look around this room, it doesn't take an argument to show that we are unequal. Now the question is, uh, are there ways in which we are immediately, it, it's immediately perceptible that we are equal? Now what are those? We're all teachers. Uh, uh, is that, it's obvious because of what? Okay, but by virtue of the fact that we know what this program is. But by looking around this room, though, looking at each other, in what way are we all equal? We're, we're all human beings. Yeah, the, the, now that, that both answers the question, I think as well as it can be answered, uh, but also raises the question, what does it mean to be human? Right? In what ways are we equal, uh, equally human? But that's the point, right? All men are created equal. That there is this nature or essence of humanity that if you're a human being, you get everything that comes with being a human being. Okay? Some aren't uh, uh, more human than others, shall we say. With the Orwellian, what was the Orwell's term? All men are created equal, but some are more equal than others. That's not what the Declaration is saying. Okay? Uh, we'll get to Lincoln. I'm tempted to, to quote Lincoln on this because there's a, a speech that he gives uh, when the, the Dred Scott opinion in 1857 is published finally in May, there's a speech that he gives which I think in, in one or two paragraphs gives the shortest and most clear and profound explication of what the founders meant by equality. He explains the ways in which the founders didn't claim we were all equal and the ways in which we were all equal. But I'll, I'll save that for our Gettysburg phase. Um, but according to the Declaration, what are some of the ways in which to say that you're a human being is to say that you have the same things that other human beings, in fact, all of the human beings have. What does it say? What's the, what, what are the terms that are spelled out there? Go ahead. Well, you have the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of 
Okay, this right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Right? Uh, endowed, notice, by their creator. Okay, this is your nature as a human being. Uh, this is the way you are created. Notice, again, what institution isn't mentioned yet, and this is on purpose. Government. Okay? Uh, according to the Second Continental Congress, for us to establish our path to independence and to establish what kind of regime we think we ought to have, we have to understand something prior to that. Our nature as human beings. Right? What, what uh, Chris spelled out for us uh, from uh, the Second uh, Treatise of Civil Government of Locke. Okay? So it's God that gives us this. Uh, our endowment of certain inalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, everybody has a fear of human being. You get it. That's, something, that's not this half of the room has life and liberty, and this half has life, liberty, and this capacity and, and right to uh, pursue happiness. Now, once that is established, right, in the reader's mind, that you have these rights, then you raise the question, what then? Right? If we have these rights, okay, what kind of existence uh, do you live in? Uh, what is the problem with having all human beings endowed with their humanity or these rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? What did Locke point out? Even though we all have them equally, and no one is the, as one of my professors put it, no one is the natural-born ruler of anyone but himself or herself, even though that's true, about your nature as a human being, what's the problem? <coughs> we could all have rights, but Yeah, how do you protect them? How do you exercise them? Are you free to exercise that which you possess? Right, this is a question of, of, of owning something but not really having it. Right? Um, what we lack, right? nature gives us rights, God gives us rights, but these rights are not self-enforcing. If we're all consulting right, the law of nature, if we're all using our reason, yeah, we might very well be able to live an idyllic existence without government. The problem is we don't always consult or don't always follow uh, the law of nature. And so now we go, oh, what we all have equally, now we need to create something. Notice this, this God doesn't give. God gives us rights, but where does government come from? Us. We have to come up with something that will allow us to protect what we already possess. Look at the language. That to give these rights? Does your version say that? To grant these rights? No, that to secure, to make safe, to protect. You already have the rights. Government steps in and says, back off to anybody who's going to interfere with them, right? That to secure these rights, to make it safe for you to enjoy them to exercise them. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers, and here's a key word, right, from the consent of the governed. Why is that true? Why is that the only legitimate form of government? Knowing what we know about human equality. Why is consent, in a, in a way, the flip side of the equality coin? Okay, you have to give a part of yourself up to join. You want to explain that a little more? In order to agree to be a citizen of this government or a citizen of what's being created, you have to give up a little of your 
Okay, I want to know why. Go ahead. Uh, well, sometimes the concern of the government is anti-equality. Oh, interesting. Sometimes, uh, like when? <laughs> Can you think of a time in American history where consent did not uh, enshrine the full complement of equal rights to all of its uh, the constituent members of society? Uh, today now, can you think maybe earlier than now? Civil War. How about the time that they wrote the Declaration of Independence? How about when we came up with the Articles of Confederation, the Perpetual Union? How about the Constitution? Okay. Right. Uh, what's the problem? On the one hand, we recognize what all people are entitled to, right? But we also say justice demands what? That to secure those rights, you have to do what? Institute government. Uh, institute government. How do you have to institute it? By consent. By consent. You have to ask people permission. But we still. I want. I want to make that connection tighter. Why? Why do you have to ask people's permission to govern them? Because they're giving up some freedoms of their own. They're giving up something of themselves. To, in order to be governed, they have to consent to okay. that. As to. Right, because if you're in the state of nature, who do you have to ask to exercise your rights? Well, yeah, I guess you can ask yourself, but <laughs> that's presumed. <laughs> you don't have to ask anybody, right? You don't. No, no one has to give you leave to exercise your rights. Go ahead. Okay, so it's both a founding as well as an operating or an abiding principle. Good? Well, so it's, it's majority rule with the consideration of minority rights. Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's interesting. Well, I want to talk about that in a second, Cheryl. So that you buy into it. I mean, if you're going to use middle school terminology or whatever, you know, when you create rules in your classroom, a lot of teachers now, they, they create rules, you know, with the students in the beginning. So that it's like that. So I mean, if you're applying this to you know a smaller state, when people buy it, they'll buy into it more. So it doesn't look arbitrary, does it? Yeah. Right. It, it, the students can say. I mean, you could have just not arbitrarily. You have your reasons for these rules, and we all know what they are. Um, but if the students don't see that, they, they 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 somehow think these are rules in the teacher's interest not my interest. They don't see these as rules conducive of the common good. But you can accomplish the same objective. You don't have to change a single rule. But if somehow you manage to get the buy-in, as it were, if somehow you manage to get the students to think these are their rules, <laughs> they came up with them. In other words, they can see the reason, not just the coercion behind it. I have to do it because teacher says so. Teacher says so theorem. Or dad says, I like even better the dad says so theorem. Um, if they can see the reason behind it, the good, that it is in their interest that they uh, uh, comply with these rules, uh, then you can accomplish the same objective. I think there's a hand over here, Norman. You have to be willing to enter consent, you have to be willing to limit your natural rights. You have to be willing to limit them. Why? Uh, for, the, for the good of, of everyone's okay. natural rights. Very good. And that's a, I think she was saying that your, your limits come at the end, what? The, the right. tip of their right. nose? Yeah. Okay, also, too, you have to establish a legitimate government, too. I mean, that, what she was saying about buying into a government, if you think the government's legitimate, then you're willing to abide by those laws. And the same thing in your classroom. If your students respect you, 
and they can see where you're coming from, mm -hmm. then they're more willing to concede whatever it is that they need to concede to make it work. Yeah, and remember again, the, the, the legitimacy comes by virtue of the consent, right? Um, without the consent, nobody can tell you what to do, right? You tell yourself what to do, presuming that you're following the law of nature, as Locke points out. Um, but what the Declaration points out is we can't live at peace that way. You can't enjoy your freedoms just giving dictates to yourself that you agree, you compact, make an agreement with others to abide by the same laws, to receive the same protection, right? Uh, so the reason, you know, you can be ruled by someone else, but what's required is that you give them the permission to do so. Now the problem, of course, is if you want the equal protection of rights, but you have to ask people their permission, do you see the rub? What's the obstacle here? <coughs> when you, go ahead. They don't have to grant it. Uh, well, okay, they don't have to grant it to be sure, but, but let's say we've, we've, we've agreed to uh, form this civil society, and now we're going to pass laws. Now, the laws, to make this society work in practice, do we have to get everybody's consent every time for every measure? Can you live that way? No, in practice, there's going to be few people who just hold out just to be jerks, right? Because they know, they're like, oh, you can't do anything without my, okay. So for the betterment of all of you, I I'm going to need a little, a little something, a little something extra. To avoid the tyranny of the minority, right? The numerical minority, we say, look, in practice, the consensus of the group is going to be, in practice, operative through the rule of the majority, because it's the closest approximation to unanimity. Okay? The problem with that is when people vote, right? Uh, do they always just vote according to the law of nature? The laws of nature and nature's God. What comes into it? Oh, let's get back to Hamilton, Federalist 31. Interests, passion, prejudice. Oh, no, I'll accept your vote because it's clear your interests, passion, and prejudice are not uh, contrary to the laws of nature and nature of God, but in your case, we're going to revoke that, right? Chad is still hanging on there. Uh-uh. Okay? No. So, I mean, people ask, well, how could the, the founders believe in equality on the one hand but still have slavery? Now, that's a whole other uh, topic that we can get into, but part of what's going on there, of course, is it was freedom for me but not for thee. Some had a very strong interest or a strong passion or a strong prejudice that prevented them, at least immediately, from using the vote to secure the rights of all. Someone mentioned that it's majority rule consistent with the rights of the minority. Right? Jefferson spelled it out that way in his first inaugural address. Uh, but that's the trick. And this is what we're going to find out uh, this evening and tomorrow uh, when Gordon Lloyd takes us through the Constitutional Convention. Right? I, when I think of the word constitution, I think of uh, one of the base words there is to constitute. Right? How is it that we're going to constitute ourselves as a people, as a, as a form of self-rule? How do we constitute or channel consent in the direction of the equal protection of all? That is a very difficult thing to do. Knowing where you want to end up is one thing, equal protection, right? Equal protection of everyone's rights. How you get there? What are the mechanisms? What are the structures that you create so that more often than not, there's a higher, high probability that the laws that are produced will actually benefit 
everyone. We'll actually produce the common good. That's the trick of constitution making, and we'll see how difficult a trick that is to pull off, especially when you don't just have a nation of people. You have a nation of people already existing in various state governments now trying to come up with a national government of sorts that doesn't get rid of the state governments. That, that further complicates things, the fact that we're a, feder, a federal uh, uh, people, as it were. All right, any questions on uh, uh, the consent and equality tension? It's a tension that uh, I don't think we can get away, with, uh, get away from. Um, if you remember yesterday, we had a short uh, excerpt from a chapter that we had you read from Harry Jaffa's Crisis of the House Divided. Do you remember that? Uh, I think that chapter is the, the best thing that I've read that uh, kind of delineates this uh, abiding tension. In, it's, it's a tension that I don't think we can completely resolve. We'll never get to the point where we have made consent automatically and, obvious, and always produce equal protection. Um, public opinion, the battle for public opinion, informing and shaping public opinion is a constant obligation, necessity, duty of a people who intend to be self-governing. In other words, what they think about their government, how their constitution ought to operate, will shape how they produce the laws that produce, uh, that, uh, yeah, that produce the equal protection of the laws. We'll see when we get to Gettysburg that this is what the battle was about prior to the Civil War, the, the rhetorical battle. Why Lincoln was so upset over Stephen Douglas, who wasn't pro-slavery in an overt and explicit sense. He was an Illinois senator. This isn't Calhoun or Hammond or, 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 or Land, uh, William Lance. Uh, Yancey of uh, South Carolina. This isn't Jeff Davis we're talking about. We're talking about Steve Douglas. Why he was so upset at this concept of popular sovereignty. Right? The idea that, uh, uh, that Douglas says that we shouldn't take, uh, we, we shouldn't form an opinion about whether slavery should extend itself into the Western territories, the federal territories. Leave it for the territorial settlers to decide it. Remove it from the national table of discussion. And, and the hope was that slavery agitation would go away. Uh, why Lincoln thought that was the, the, the guaranteed way of nationalizing slavery. Uh, Lincoln was, was showing the country that how it thought about itself as a self-governing people was critical to the survival of self-government. It wasn't, in short, enough to just have a constitution. The, the core of the constitution could be gutted if the people misunderstood the premises. Uh, and that's why that fragment on union and the Constitution, you know, the apples of gold and picture of silver or frames of silver, why that's so important. All right, we'll, we'll uh, hold off on that uh, for now. Um, just moving along here, can somebody uh, pick up after that dash mark that whenever, whenever any form of government, can we, somebody read that out loud? That whenever any form of government is the becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. All right, very long sentence. They're very locking in that sense, right? You can hold page and it's still one sentence. Now that we know a few things about human nature, about uh, the nature of, of, of legitimate government. 
that brings us to the subject at hand, right? Um, what happens when you don't find yourself under a government that has consent as its operative principle? Okay. What does he say there? That the authority has been abrogated. Right? When government stops doing what it's supposed to be doing, when it stops doing its job and starts doing something else, right? when it acts actually in, in, in an opposite fashion, it says here that the people have the right to alter or abolish it. Notice, they don't have to go to the fullest extent right away. Okay? And we're, in a way, they're already anticipating the very government that they've got to set up. They don't want to set up government that anytime somebody has a problem with it, they think the only solution is, you know, throwing the baby out of the bathwaters to kill the whole thing off, um, that they have a right to change it, to alter it, or abolish it. And not just institute any government. Remember, he said that they derive their just powers. Government doesn't get any and all powers. There's only certain powers that government should have. Right? They should institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles, organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, he doesn't stop there. Why? What does he go on to talk about? What does he go on to, to set the table, as it were, the conditions for the appropriate uh, exercise of this authority? Why doesn't he just stop it at that? And then, in other words, just go on to list all the other, he has, he has, he has, all the bad things King George III has done. So people might misuse their authority. Simply because you have the authority doesn't mean that you should always exercise it. Right? They, they, what's the key term? What's the pivot of this paragraph? Prudence. Prudence. Uh, not a word we hear very often today. In fact, uh, uh, George 41, right, uh, the president of, the, of our current president, he was made fun of, right? Wouldn't be prudent. Wouldn't be prudent. Uh, people made fun of his use of that term. Uh, the founders... They use the term. What do they mean by it? What, what do we mean when we use the term prudent? Advisable. Okay, advisable. Good. Uh, making a good judgment. Good judgment. A reasonable judgment. A reasonable judgment. Good. Any others? Careful. Careful. Oh, so it, it implies some kind of caution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Worthwhile. Worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we could have a solution that's worse than, you know, the cure that's worse than the disease. Uh, Fine, you could throw off something bad, but if it produces a chaotic, anarchical situation, situation perhaps that produces a worse evil than the one that you got rid of, uh, that would not have been advisable, would you say? Like Iraq. Uh, like Iraq. Uh, Available point. All right, here we go. <laughs> to state the obvious, Kimberly? Uh, entails an ingredient of time, not immediate. Okay. Yeah, no, interestingly enough, the Declaration of Independence, as you get, as you well know from the readings in this session, wasn't the first statement on the subject. And in fact, in the Declaration itself, we say, look, we have tried. What's the big word today, everybody? Not war. Don't say peace. But, but before violence, you should try what? Diplomacy. Right? In other words, talk it out. Okay? Negotiation. Uh, we'll actually get to this when we look at the letter uh, from Birmingham Jail, Martin Luther King. Uh, explains uh, in a very robust way uh, uh, how you go about this strategy of of nonviolent civil disobedience. Negotiation is part of it. You don't just go straight to the protest. Uh, 
the, what, the Declaration, do you remember when they talk about the Declaration? Where, you know, short of declaring uh, independence and, and revolting and abolishing form of government, what did we claim we've already done? Remember when they talk about this? Yeah, okay, where, yeah, where is that? Let's actually look at that real quick. Um, blah, blah, blah. Page seven. Somebody get that already? Go ahead, Gilbert. Go ahead. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. That's probably a reference to Ben Franklin's speech before um, Parliament in 1774. Um, All the French petition. So we, go ahead. We have reminded them of the circumstance of our emigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. Okay, now this lengthy paragraph follows a shorter paragraph. Uh, there's, uh, in a way, kind of two forms of diplomacy going on. Uh, this, the, the more lengthy paragraph there is, uh, I think, an informal approach at diplomacy. What was the formal one that we, we skipped over? But we, we need to hold these in tandem. It's got to petition the king. Yeah, it's a... When we were harmed by our government, first thing you ought to do is say, yo, <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> uh, government is supposed to help, not hinder, my exercise of rights. Uh, perhaps they didn't know they were doing it. Perhaps they were unaware that the Stamp Act, the Sugar Act, the Intolerable Act, the Quebec Act, etc. Perhaps they were unaware <laughs> of the implications uh, of these actions. And so he says, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Uh, what's, a, what's, an, what's the most humble thing uh, that they said? Uh, think about uh, Jefferson's summary view. Think about Continental Congress's uh, declaration results. Well, how did we express our humility? What was, what was emphatic in both of those documents? We made our appeal as, as subjects of the realm, as subjects of His Majesty, quote-unquote. We expressed our humility by expressing ourselves as uh, still loyal subjects to the king, still members of the realm of Great Britain. Uh, we were not, in other words, declaring independence at that time. We were trying to restore harmonious relationship uh, with the king. So in the most humble terms, our repeated petitions, we didn't just try this once in kind of in a flippant way or, 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 or a perfunctory way and, Hey, we don't like what you're doing. Oh, you don't like that? Okay, now we're going to take up arms. No, the claim here is that we have repeated, uh, repeatedly petitioned, and they've been answered by repeated injury. At that point, we realize, oh, we know what you're up to now. We get it. We get it. What do we get? Here's the conclusion. A prince, general term for king or ruler, a prince whose character... In other words, someone, this isn't just one thing, a mistake they made. This is the, kind of an abiding way 
that they act, uh, that he acts. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Who is fit, by the way, to be a ruler of a free people? The representatives of the free people. Yeah, those people themselves, through, through their representatives, precisely. Okay. So, we've tried the diplomatic route. Those two paragraphs spell that out. We've done it formally as well as informally. We're related to these folks. We've written letters to them. Right. Death to our appeals. I guess, presumably, that if they were not deaf, they would have... Uh, uh, applied pressure through the House of Commons, among other things. All right, back to page three then. So what does prudence, wisdom applied to our particular situation call for? What does he say? Prudence dictates what? That when you are harmed by your government, what action should follow? What, What do they say on that page? Guys sound like the principal peanuts gang. What what does prudence dictate? That you can abolish what you're accustomed to. Uh, okay, but uh, again, let, let's. Uh, I don't want to rush to judgment here. Let's uh, let's let's take the steps up to that conclusion. You don't change government on a whim. On a whim, okay. You don't do it right away, right? Governments long established. Hmm. Why governments? Why? Why the? Why the description of government in this way? What? What? What, what is the? All other things being equal, why should a government that's long established not be disrupted? Again, all other things being equal, why wouldn't you want to revolt against a long established government? They must be doing something right. Yeah. It, 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 now, I think we're such. We grow up in America, and so it's easier for us to say, no, long established, it could have been a despotism. Right? They could have been there for a long time. That's just terrible, terrible. The presumption here is that if the government's been around for a while, uh, what, must that, what must be operating not just on the governmental end, but among the ruled? What must have been a part of that ethos and just way of... Consent. Yeah, that, you know, maybe we not be directly represented or maybe represented at all, but um, we've gotten used to it. We've accustomed ourselves to it. We've made a life under this regime. Uh, so governments want to establish, you don't want to rock that boat uh, uh, yet. Okay? Governments long established, they shouldn't be changed for, here's the contrast, long established government and light and transient causes. Okay? Accordingly, all experience has shown mankind are more disposed, look at the word he's here, to suffer while evils are sufferable. Right? Patent harms. He says, you know what, mankind, they're going to roll with it. Okay? We're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll absorb these blows. Uh, they're going to do that rather than, uh, as it says here, to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Here the argument essentially is, again, when government messes up, light and transient causes things that aren't going to happen all the time, uh, we'll, 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 we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll eat it. Now, but you know, this will pass. Do you think too there's an element of fear or uncertainty that without the British representation, they wouldn't exist at all? I mean, obviously the navy and so forth being there and their presence is keeping off attacks from other. Yeah, well, by this point in time, of course, we. I mean, that may have been true a few years earlier. Uh, I think 
think that may have been the case. But uh, at this point in time, we've, we've already made the decision. We're just kind of walking through our reasoning. But I think you're right. It's essentially a form of the, uh, the argument, the devil we know is better than the devil we don't know. Um, but those are for light, light and transient causes. And here's where, I mean, he's cribbing from Locke word for word now, right? A long train of abuses and usurpations. Jefferson wishes he could have thought of that line. He stole it word for word from Locke. Word for word. Do you guys remember did, in your lock? Did we assign them that passage in lock? Um, my book with me. Get my lock. It's in the two twenties. I know that. Oh, here we go. Page one thirteen. Page one thirteen. He says, uh, second line there, great mistakes in the ruling part, many wrong and inconvenient laws, all the slips of human frailty. We're not looking for perfection here from our government, according to Locke. These will be borne by the people without mutiny or murmur. I don't know if they're complain. But if a... No, Locke was reading the Declaration. Uh, if a long train of abuses, prevarications, and artifices, all tending the same way, make the design visible to the people. Skip a few words. They should then rouse themselves and endeavor to put the rule into such hands which may secure to them the ends for which government was at first erected. So we're back to the declaration. When a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, were they under, at that time, July 4th, 1776, were they under absolute despotism? Hear your name. Absolute despotism? No. Who was under absolute despotism? Jefferson slaves, okay? <laughs> uh, that's not a joke. Uh, that's absolute despotism. Jefferson was not under absolute despotism. Do you wait? Until you're under absolute despotism. Aha. And Locke teaches the same thing, right? The thief comes into your house, you chance upon this thief, and he says, okay, okay, I promise, after I tie you up, I am only going to take your jewels. I won't harm you. Oh, okay. Yes. Go ahead. Evinces bears the same root as evidence. And the evidence shows what? That ultimately the conclusion will be absolute justice. Yes. And so the smart thing to do. Prudence. Here's prudence again. Prudence dictates, huh, do we wait for the British to put all the clamps on us before we decide, wow, we thought they were going to do it, now they have. All right, let's... Everybody, after they've tied you up. No, it's when you figure it out. Oh, but it's when you connect the dots and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. If we allow this to continue, we really will be as enslaved as those we hold, as Washington put it, under so arbitrary a sway. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead, Chris. This is what I mentioned before. This is section 220 in Locke is where he explicitly articulates this this right to prevent tyranny, uh, which comes from the right to resist it. Is, is, is there a good section 220? Okay. 
At the end of that, where he says they have a right not only to get out of it, but to but prevent, to prevent it. it. Very good. Again, we see here prudence in operation. He says, when it evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. Remember, there's a design. It hasn't been fully carried out yet. But these are the plans. These are, these are the intentions. When that happens, here's where the Continental Congress says, it's not only our right, it's our duty, getting back to the necessity point, that when you, as a self-governing human being, when it's your nature, nature to govern yourself, for you to see someone else to govern, to, who intends to govern you without asking your permission, do you have a choice about letting them enslave you? According to this, no. That any self-respecting human being would at that point, as he puts it, exercise their right and their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. Plural, right? So we're talking about the colonial level as well as the imperial. History of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, not liked and transient causes. There is a pattern that we've noticed, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny. He hasn't gotten there yet, but that's his intent. That's our claim. Now that we've stated this in the abstract, he says, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Isn't this in line with um, thoughts that were around at the time in radical Whig ideology that it was the natural inclination of all governments to try to, to lend itself to um, autocracy and, and to increase their power, and so you had to be on the lookout for signs that they were trying to do this. So when you see things like a quartering act or uh, vice admiralty courts that were taking away their rights to a jury, you could say, aha, that's proof that that's where they're tending they and we again. need to draw the line. Good, good. Yeah, I think it's consistent with that. Well, yeah, and ultimately this whole thing was also to convince you know, people that were still loyal to the crown. I mean, and saying, look, we have been prudent. We have tried to be loyal. And, but it's not working, and if we really want to feel like, you know, we're not having all of these, you know, enforcements put on us, then we have to do this. Yeah, and, and that things would get worse if we keep thinking, oh no, that, you know, it's still Mother England, they'll be alright, they really do have our good, yep. I was just going to say, he gave a good summary of that in the, a summary view of the rights of uh, British America, where he outlines the beginnings, and now each one is Okay, actually, this is a, a good segue for us. Why don't we turn to this huge thing, since you brought it. Let's look at, um, did you want to look at Jefferson or the Continental Congress there? Maria, what, what's, what's your pleasure? Who's the he? Important here's the who. You want to look at Jefferson or the, or the Congress? Same year. She says Congress. I heard her. Page one. Let's start there. This is two years. The 
for the Declaration of Independence, um, the resolution to set, a, set off on a separate course. Uh, and so we, we're still uh, we're still trying to uh, establish good relations uh, with Great Britain. Uh, so what do we see here? I mean, what uh, I guess the, the best way to approach this is: what are the similarities between uh, these declarations and resolves, and what are the, the key differences? Um, I'll let either answer either of those questions. I mean, was this a was this just a, almost a draft version of the declaration in your mind when you read it? Did you go, "Wow, this looks fairly familiar"? It's almost exactly like the declaration. Um, and so, what were what are some key terms or or or, or uh, us there that reminded you of the declaration? Go ahead, man. I think the same. One of the things that's different is that they still use the, the legal. They're still using the legal terms and terminology. So, by legal terminology, by does, the parliament does not have the right okay. to raise weapons without their consent. All right. So we're actually trying to point out ways in which they're abusing. Their own authority, I mean, their own, uh, the, the authority as we have come to understand it and, and live under it. Uh, it's not that they're assume, you know, assuming other authority or additional uh, exercises of power that we never allow Parliament to do. Here, they're, they're just abusing their own uh, authority. So we're trying to right the trains and we're trying to get it back on its tracks. Good. Well, and at the very end of it, they say, you know, to these grievous acts and measures, America cannot submit but in hopes that their fellow subjects will revise them or restore us to that state of happiness and prosperity. I'm right there. Very good. So fellow subjects, we're still subjects, they're still subjects, and recognizing that if the change has to be made, it's going to be made through representatives that are more directly accountable to the guys across the pond, not here. Right? We don't have any technically, uh, technically any direct representatives, so... Uh, that we, we were looking for restoration here. We're not looking for independence. Go ahead. Talking about representation um, in resolve number one, you can see, you know, we didn't give the consent. We're looking at those self-evident truths that you will see in the declaration, the acceptance of property. Um, but as Hobbes mentioned, excuse me, law defines property, you're looking at life, liberty, and estate. Okay. I mean, so they are entitled to life, liberty, and property, that first resolve, and that these, uh, this right cannot be disposed of without their consent. So both, both an understanding of what people possess by nature, lives, liberty, and the state through acquisition, uh, as well as uh, the operative governmental mechanism, which would be consent, which is a curious term for them to use in 74, given that right now what the most Great Britain would say is that, well, yeah, Americans are, uh, you are represented virtually before computers. Virtual representation, John. Uh, and they make uh, numerous references to the English Bill of Rights, to their rights as Englishmen. Rights as Englishmen. Mm-hmm. Good. Just to the devil's advocate, you know, saying that they did have representation, would they have agreed to any taxes? Would the Americans have? Well, yeah. Sure. You see, remember, the point was made at the time, it was only a four pence tax. I mean, it was, it was not the quantity. The point was that they passed this act without consulting us. And to abide by that in the small way, in principle, permits them to tax us to whatever extent. Again, without consent. It was, it was the representation part that we took issue with. It wasn't the taxation part. Uh, we also took issue with the fact that it was what we considered an internal 
that's well, but like we talked before about you know ruling in the interest of the majority when you're talking about well ruling in the interest do, do you mean do you I mean, I'm sorry, ruling, ruling in the common good Okay. If you're looking at distance, is it prudent, since we've been using that word, to consult them on every single measure? Who's the they and who's the them? Well, I mean, if you have colonial representation in terms of Congress and passing legislation, you'd almost have to have someone who wasn't a true colonist to be there to be a spokesperson, so then you would be
trying to be the representative of the Americans, and most of the time being listened to until Lord North reaches his power, whereupon the British Parliament ceases any longer to listen to the Americans at all, and largely brings about this break because there's no longer any consultation. Uh, the idea that we might actually, as colonies, elect a representative to the British Parliament might well shorten the whole revolutionary period, yeah, might well as it did in Canada. All right. Well, I'm, I'm just going to kind of support your point back there. Actually, resolved for the colonists actually said and as the English colonists are not represented and from their local and other circumstances cannot properly be represented in the British Parliament, they are entitled to a free and exclusive power of legislation in their several provincial legislatures where their right of representation can alone be preserved. So it seems that the colonists also saw this issue of distance as yes. paramount, and therefore, I mean, I don't see Virginia giving up in any sense their right to maintain their own governing body, et cetera. That. So in one sense, I think that, that you're absolutely right, that that issue of distance was huge. They, they This is what they called that same resolve, internal polity. Exactly. Uh, that, uh, these, I mean, it was... It was it was absurd for any Virginia colonist to think that the British Parliament could legislate anything that just solely dealt with right. Virginia. And then they also gave the complaint, and I was looking for it here, but there was one point in here, they give the complaint that the representatives sent to rule them are answerable only to Parliament and the King, and that if government is going to work, they have to be answerable to the people and the colonists, which was individual issues that kept coming up, particularly in Massachusetts. These issues of being sent these autonomous voices Ports of abroad, ports on ships. Exactly, exactly, that the colonists then, you know, they didn't answer to the colonists. That's right, very good. We see the same thing in uh, the Virginia side of the, of, of the argument as well, too, that in the, in the, in the early part of our history, with the House of Burgess, the royal governor, um, continually sending back correspondence to the, to, to the king um, regarding um, laws for enactment in, in the Virginia colony, sending back for clarification, you know, not agreeing with the, with the king. We find uh, several documents along that line. Uh, there is ongoing correspondence that, that the colonies had some strength early on. Especially when we were paying the governors. Right. As soon as the governors start getting paid, but it can change. Then things change. But we do see we do see the sociological change here, the uh, anthropological change here, when we start referring to ourselves as distinctly Americans, and then we start seeing this this breakaway. We start seeing ourselves evolving to somebody different. Very good, Aaron. He kind of read or led right into what I was going to say that if we're talking about the development of the American mind, obviously that's distinctly different from the British mind, and probably distance had something to do with it, but maybe even if we had been allowed to have representatives in Parliament or start, you know, having more self-rule, we would have started thinking differently anyway, and oh, well, now we're, we're distinctly American, let's go ahead and do this, even though he's not necessarily infringing on our rights anyway, because right. we're, we're a different people. We may have come to a point where we just saw British rule as superfluous or yeah. redundant. We're like, well, what? Now what? But certain things would have had to manifest themselves. For example, we would have had to develop a navy for starters. <laughs> uh, those sorts of things. And you wonder what would have created the situation to do that. Uh, but you're right. Um, it could have. It, this could have taken a different path. 
built on what Aaron was saying. If Parliament had said, oh, you're right, you don't have representation, and well, we're going to say each colony can have one or two members of Parliament, we still would have been a distinct minority. And they could have voted all these things over and over and over again without us having any objection. And I often think, well, it would have been smarter for Britain to have done that. Because it absorbed our Because uh, where would our argument have been at that point to say all these wonderful right. things that they've ignored our rights if we were just the minority that lost the vote? Yeah, we could, have, we, we could only have done it, I would argue, hypothesis here, and so far as we, can, as we maintain the distinction between external policy and internal I think that's the only way we would have been able to, we would have accepted that. Colonialism in its nature is oppressive because the colonies were established to benefit the homeland. All colonies that were established during imperialism were established to benefit the home country. uh, To me, that's how the British saw the colonies, how they were subjects. But they're subjects to benefit us. It, they don't necessarily need representation. We'll do it for them. Right. They're local dependencies. They depend on us, right. and we depend on them, so they ought what, to be happy. What curious ha- transformation takes place under the United States Constitution? Do we set out to expand the United States by virtue of colonization? Notice what we do. We make them we make them states, exactly. Very interesting transformation takes place there, that we, in a way, rehabilitate the notion of colonies by actually creating these conditions for them to actually join the Union as equal partners. Because historically, colonialism is oppressive to the people in the colonies themselves. Yeah? where we, the people, say that our, our uh, grievances with the king and with the people of England have only to do with representation in Parliament. If we could just cross those out, doesn't the analysis become, is there sufficient evidence to evince, or, or sufficient evidence of a plan to render us under a tyrannical government? You mean besides just the formal complaint about lack of representation? Right. Well, I think there's, I think there's a number of... Yeah. There are many things. I guess no, I'm agree with, you. with the idea that this representation in this distance uh, is the outcome determinative... Oh, no. I don't, I don't think anyone was suggesting that it was kind of the, the end-all and be-all for why we declared independence. Of, but it was clearly an abiding complaint that we had, and you see that repeated in the various documents... Um, let, let me get us back to this one. Is there anything uh, else in this document that, that bears uh, highlighting in terms of similarities to the Declaration or market departures? Not departures, since it, had, it, it precedes it, but go ahead. Well, I think really what we're talking about here, I think the lynch, the thing that really drove it, and I might be reading more into it, is the, the idea that he makes a case here that he placed the standing army over us. I think that was the line that got crossed that really the tactic was important but once 
we became an, uh, he brought his army over here in time, time of peace. In time of peace. We, we, it was almost like at that moment we became a separate nation. Yeah, and, and this, if you read, uh, I'm finishing reading this, uh, actually listening to it since it's on CD, uh, this biography by Joseph Ellis, His Excellency, the biography of George Washington, and he keeps bringing that point out. I mean, for Washington, it was a hum I like this word, humongo. It's a big handicap uh, to Washington that we did not have a disciplined, well-regulated army. Not that I'm not saying that, our, our, that Washington was in favor of a standing army, but we were handicapped by the fact that we, we, we gloried in the fact that we didn't have guys who were trained and kept training to do this sort of thing. So it was we suffered the vice of our virtue by, by, uh, by the fact that we didn't have a standing army. Yeah, that's a, that's a clear uh, difference. Uh, again, just to return to that page three, right? Um, it, it restore us to that state in which both countries found happiness and prosperity. Right? So we're going to adopt certain measures, not because we're we're forming an independent nation, but we're trying to apply pressure in the only way we can, peaceful ways, but palpable ways, to get their attention, to get them to write their course, to start governing us well rather than poorly, if not in an evil way. Um, but let me just point your attention to one thing, and then we're going to look at some of these other documents. On page two, bottom of the first column there, right above the first resolve, uh, look at this encapsulation of the rationales. There's three of them there. Uh, here we can see some overlap with the declaration, and then, of course, the clear departures. That the inhabitants, we declare that the inhabitants of the English colonies in North America by, first one we mentioned, most transcendent one, the immutable laws of nature. This is the bottom first column, page two. Second, the principles of the English Constitution, a constitution, by the way, which is not written. Okay? They don't have a constitution in the sense that we have a constitution. Every law that is passed by Parliament becomes part of the English Constitution. Uh, so it's a more sophisticated concept that's called prescription, but what has been prescribed or kind of passed down from uh, time immemorial, that's part of the, the English Constitution. But everyone knows what this is or has a sense of it. So it's the laws of nature that are immutable, right? These don't change. Principles of the English Constitution, and thirdly, the several charters or compacts, right? These colonial charters, the things that got the colonies started to begin with. But these are the three things that we're going to appeal to to show violations uh, thereof. All right, um, let's look at Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson's, Jefferson's summary view. This begins on page 435. Same year. I'm sorry, 435, what did I say? 435, July 1774. A summary view of the rights of British America. What is the aim of the, the colonies as expressed by Jefferson here? What is he, what's their express goal? 
was their goal in this? Yeah, instead of looking at the means, we're going to look at the end. Well, according to this document, what did they? What were they shooting for? Okay, okay. That's what I. That's what I thought. They were trying to just apply to Rome and say, you know, these, this is what um, this is what you've done to us. Okay. And what do we want? When, now that we list these grievances, what do we want to happen at the end of the day? As a result of publishing this and conveying this to them, what do we want to happen? And I'm trying to show the difference between this document and the declaration, and we'll also see some similarities. Redress. Go ahead, George. Redress of grievances. What's that? A redress of our grievances. A redress of our grievances. In other words, do we acknowledge their authority? As a government authority, yes, right? You don't appeal to that authority <laughs> uh, if you consider them illegitimate, right? By the time you get the declaration, are we making any appeals to their authority? No. <laughs> uh, we, we have said, we, we, in fact, we claim that one of our grievances is that he has declared us out of his protection. And he's stirring up Indians against us, our own slaves against us, right? Uh, Chris, what were you going to say? I say what it was not. Neither our wish nor our interest to separate from her. Great. Look, look on 441. That first column there. About two thirds of the way down. It is neither our wish nor our interest to separate from her. July 1774. We are willing on our part, right? After this long list of grievances, we are willing on our part to sacrifice. We're vol- we'll give it up. Give up what? Sacrifice everything which reason can ask to the restoration, there's that word again, of that tranquility from which all must, uh, for which all must wish. On their part, let them be ready. Right? We're going to sacrifice these things. Let them be ready to establish union on a generous path, a plan. Let them name their terms, but let them be just. So we don't intend to separate at this point. Okay. That's not our end. Our end, in fact, is union. It's a restoration. On the uh, almost the bottom of page 438, mm-hmm. where he's entreating um, King George, and he even they use the word recommend. I mean, I think that was pretty, like, you know, mellow. Yes, Dave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, another expression of humility. We're humble. We're speaking as subjects to a sovereign. Aaron? I also think it's really interesting that they're entreating King George to step in on their behalf and get Parliament to revoke everything. Okay. They don't have any representatives <coughs> you can do it for them. They so, have to ask the king to do so it. So they're, they're going at it by way of one branch over another. Good? It seems like he has more of a bone to pick with Parliament and where the decoration is the king. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the king. But he has, he has, he has. It's all about the king. And that, that, that's a philosophical shift that takes place there. Uh, by that point in time, we, we recognize that, you know, it was never really about Parliament's authority over us. It, our beef really was with the king. We get to a point logistically, or not logistically, logically and philosophically, you know what? We need to be coherent and consistent here. Uh-huh. This is not addressed to Parliament. Mm-hmm. It's the one we're really separating from is... King, that, that, that a one person could actually uh, do this against us. And that's treason and that's scary. 
Uh, it's treason if you still consider yourself an English subject, to be sure. Yes? And in fact, you know, maybe maybe as, as many as a third of the colonists still in 1776 were not willing to go that route. I'm just curious. When I read this the first time, it the same way. He says, "This sire is the advice of your great American council." Blah blah blah. I don't care how educated he was. I don't care how anything he was. How would King George have looked at a colonist advising him? <laughs> <laughs> the question that answers itself. Would he have been contemptuous of that statement, even if he had actually been listening to it up to that moment? They, they certainly couldn't be demands placed upon them. Uh, remember, the, even the, the demands of, of Magna Carta, that much vaunted uh, document that, that uh, Britishers uh, hail, um, how did they get those demands sword met? Point. Yes, a point of sword. Uh, he had to be compelled. <laughs> Along those lines, strikes me how presumptuous this summary view was and how radical it was at the time. At the, at the opening of it, Jefferson presumes to define the majesty of the, of the King of England in terms that would not have been very acceptable to the King. Uh, I'm looking at a different version, so I don't know what page it is for you, but uh, he talks about his majesty uh, when he reflects that he is no more than the chief officer of the people. Of the people. Yeah, subject to their superintendents. So again, the, the hints here that the power ultimately derives or originates where? In the people. That is not consistent with divine right of kings. Power originates where? Fire. With government. right? God puts it there, bang, and if you happen to be in government at the time, lucky you. in all of these documents that defies the divine right of kings. There's probably more than one, but one that we haven't really mentioned is kind of the most obvious one. Establishing? Usurpation. Usurpation, yeah. But what, that, that implies what about, I mean, what, what do we claim we possess? Equality. Equality, and we're equal in what way? E equal... Equal liberty, equal rights. Our claim is that our rights, yes, as subjects of His Majesty, but we also say near the beginning that we get our rights from where? Or from whom? Somebody bigger than the king. God. That we have rights. The mere fact that you have rights, okay, and that these rights, once you say that they derive from the immutable laws of nature, that they come from God, right there the king has an obligation Already. In other words, that all rights are not positive rights. They're not rights that merely emanate from an existing, established government. That there are rights that antecede that, or that are, that are pre-existing. Once you say that, then, then you're in lock-in territory. On 438, 
same paragraph, the second column, where he is recommending. At the beginning of that, they are saying that the acts of power assumed by a body of men foreign to our Constitution and yes. unacknowledged by our laws, they have already mentally separated themselves, even though they want to rejoin, they still consider themselves separate. So we already have a sense in which there are, if not rival constitutions, there's plural constitutions right. at work here. We're subject to these that there's we've erected, and then there's a subtle one. Entity yes. Separate from the king. Yeah, the, but and the, separate from each other. We have to conflate that with the idea of these charters still. Right. Okay? And that's so that there is still a connection have there. That because of the powers given to them by the fact that they were British. And came over, so therefore they are still subject. So they brought those laws with them, plus the laws granted by the charters and the covenants and the things made with the king. Right. Definitely. Sorry. It's the early growth of federalism. Yeah. Yes. Yet the British economic policy didn't want to recognize that politically or economically. No, because it benefited them financially to exploit. Well, what else do we complain about the king? And in fact, this was, this was the very thing that was struck, uh, struck out of uh, Jefferson's original draft. Um, comes up here again. Slavery. On page uh, 439. 439. Halfway down the first column. The abolition of domestic slavery is the great object of desire in those colonies where it was unhappily introduced in their infant state. Yeah, let's stop right there. It was unhappily introduced. This is Jefferson the slave owner claiming that in the best of all worlds what should have happened or what should, what should not have happened no slaves at all here's someone who didn't get rid of the slaves uh, still able to acknowledge that that very institution was a pernicious thing it was unhappily introduced and given that unhappy circumstance what are the colonists actually trying to do but as he'll put it in the draft that the king has prostituted his negative what have they been trying to do at least look if we can't get rid of it Right away, what can we at least do to chip away at the institution? Start where? The importation, right? Let's keep reading that. Previous to the enfranchisement of the slaves we have, in other words, before we deal with emancipation here, it's necessary to exclude all further importations from Africa. Let's at least stop it at its source. The idea of it being a fixed pie, as it were. We didn't really recognize, you know, of course, this is, this is prior to the invention of the cotton gin, for starters, but we didn't recognize how much slaves themselves would thrive, even uh, as slaves in the United States, the fact that their population was grow, would grow so fast, uh, without importation. But it's necessary to exclude all, uh, exclude all further importations from Africa, yet our repeated attempts, that are being very royal collective we given that Georgia and South Carolina probably never attempted to do this. <laughs> but our repeated attempts to affect this by prohibitions and by imposing duties, these are things we're going to see, both of which actually show up in the Constitution. Right? And that non-importation clause that we'll, we'll look that uh, I think Gordon will take us through. Um, that our attempts to do this and impose duties which might amount to a prohibition, in other words, make it too expensive to import slaves have been hitherto defeated by his majesty's negative. He's got an absolute veto over colonial uh, assembly laws. Um, defeated by his majesty's negative, 
thus preferring the immediate advantages, talk about self-interest, uh, self-interest of a few British corsairs to the lasting interests of the American states, here it is, and to the rights of human nature. Here's Jefferson saying, what about the African slave? He's got rights because he is a human being. Deeply wounded by this infamous practice. Thank you. How repeatedly have they actually petitioned and tried to do this? You want me to go colony by colony? No idea. <laughs> I just I'm taking Jefferson's word for it. I don't know. Does anybody know the answer? How often? Oh, she says, how often, I mean, how repeated is repeated? How often did they pass a law at the colonial level? It was sent to the king, and the king said, Ixnay. I don't know. Because Jefferson's claim here is it was multiple attempts. Because it seems to me like in the Declaration, he does a lot of hyperbole when he's listing all the things that the king has done and sent boards of people to, you know, harass our coasts and stuff. When, and I'm wondering if this is hyperbole also. Uh, hey, given, I, I would say, I, I would grant that more in the Declaration, even as much of a fan of the Declaration I am. Given that work, the, the appeal that we're making here is still, is, is still uh, from the perspective of a subject to his, his majesty, it would, it would harm our argument to, to, to write in hyperbolic tones, don't you think? In other words, for Jefferson to claim that there are repeated attempts, and George reads this and goes, I remember two of these things coming across my desk, and they were 20 years apart. What is Jefferson doing here? Uh, I don't think, I think he can't state something here that would be at least immediately laughable. It's not true. Uh, But I don't know. That's a good question. Ask David Hackett to share. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Dr. Morrell told us, to ask you, don't do that. Uh, we have ten minutes. Let's let's shift here. Let's go to Hamilton. Farmer refuted, February twenty third, seventy five. This begins on page ninety. Is he really only twenty? He was born in seventeen fifty five, Chris. That's right. I think he's like nineteen. Wow. I'm gonna have to raise the bar on my students in terms of my expectations. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Page 90. What, uh, what is the ground, uh, or what are the grounds uh, for uh, Hamilton's argument here? Uh, we're beginning to see number of terms and concepts coalescing, uh, a formation of what Jefferson will say is an expression of the American mind later in the 1820s. Um, what, what, is, what are the grounds of uh, Hamilton's complaint against the British Parliament here? More, more philosophically here when I say grounds, not in terms of the actual list of grievances. I think we've, those are fairly commonplace by now. What's that? Natural rights. Natural rights. Again, the, the, our rights in here and our nature as human beings, not so much as subjects of, of, of the realm. 
Uh, what else? Natural rights. What other concepts? Consent. Okay, consent looms large here. Others? He also appeals to Connelly's twice. He refers to Blackstone. Blackstone, yes. And uh, talks about to using him to validate his opinion. So he's using an Eng- a recognized English the authority legal to authority. support his opinion. Right, and but he's selective in his use of Blackston, right? Uh, he quotes Blackston in terms of Blackston's uh, kind of consonance with uh, Lockean thinking, you know, appeals to the law of nature, uh, for example, on 91, right? Go ahead. Bottom of, what's that? Bottom of Okay, very good. He says, apply yourself without delay. In other words, get yourself to school, man. <laughs> Without delay to the study of the law of nature, I would recommend to your perusal Grotius, Hufendorf, Locke, Montesquieu, and Berlamachi. The natural rights of mankind. Blackstone, so he cites legal authority, an authority that uh, Britishers would respect. He also talks a couple of times just about mutual protection. At the bottom of 91, he talks about it. And then at the end, he talks about it, how people, you know, in consent of government and what sovereignty is, how it should be, people are mutually protective of each other. It's Good. not one person saying, this is how it is. And so the, an emphasis uh, in some ways on the common good here. Good. Any other terms that we've already, uh, that we'll, we'll become familiar with uh, that, that crop up again in the Declaration? He also talks about the right of revolution, not just for the colonies, but also the nations of Turkey, Russia, France, Spain, and all other despite yeah. <laughs> He has the luxury of just writing this like, a letter to the editor, uh, of pontificating in this way, right? They have an inherent right, whenever they please, to shake off the yoke of servitude, though sanctified by the immemorial usage of their ancestors, and to model their government upon the principles civil liberty. So he's, even though he cites uh, legal authority like uh, Blackston, uh, he is much more uh, disposed to think about things in the abstract and the things as they are in truth uh, in reference to people, in, the, in for example, in the state of nature and, and according to the laws of nature. Maria, did you have I was going to say that paragraph right above it. Um, the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for. Oh, good. Oh, great. That's a classic passage. Go ahead and read that. Sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of the divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by mortal power. All right, so he contrasts what God endows people with. Right, The second column, the 91, right in the middle. So you have God versus man. God, man. Mortal power or what was written uh, by uh, divinity. Well, yeah, I and mean, just the whole reference to, I, I was thinking the same thing at first, the musty record. I mean, this is, it's new. He, he's saying this is really, it's, it's not necessarily, I mean, if we have rights that are given by God, it's not brand new. But he's just saying this, you know, we need to shake off these shackles that have been over us forever and ever. And, 
wrong. Yeah, the, the implication is that to, to find out what you really, what, what you deserve from your government, if you're going to head off to a library somewhere or where they hold the statutes, musty, right? Like we haven't been there in a long time. Looking around, right there, we're, we're on we're on the wrong path. That we only need to look in a way at ourselves. Uh, which again, it, it's it's an implicit. I would argue uh, that this is an implicit argument for self-evidence. Uh, that what we deserve, we all in, in candor really already know. Uh, to have to, well, where was that? You know, like that copy of the Magna Carta. Uh, Hamilton says, no, you don't have to go there. You don't have to go there. This is written in the. And you look at the emphasis, right? He refers to human beings as if they were books, right? The volume, right? The whole volume of human nature. If you want to look at a book to determine what right you are, it was a book written by divine hands, not human hands. Don't look at statutes. Don't look at codes. Don't look at positive laws. Look at what God has written on your hearts, as it were. Yeah, did you guys see that? That's the, the column on 92, first column on 92. Um, well, here we have Hamilton, and again, it's 75, so we're on, I mean, war is afoot, as it were. Uh, the idea here, uh, I don't know where, where, where this was, you guys will know this one, but the, the cause of Boston is the cause of America, must become the cause of America. South Carolina, way down there, has to see that what's happening in that port in Boston, what's happening to uh, the citizens in, in Massachusetts, they must see that as happening to them. They, they must see, they must find a common cause with them. Uh, we, we either hang together or hang separately. Right? Unless they continually protect and assist each other, they must all inevitably, inevitably fall a prey to their enemies. And this is why in the next paragraph he says, we needed a, a, a to deliberate this as a group. A Congress was accordingly proposed and universally agreed to. So a concerted deliberation. We needed to think through, not just react, but think through how best to react to these uh, uh, oppressions. Uh, so the concept of uh, America not simply as a way of defining a certain part of the colonial realm of Great Britain, but America as an entity unto itself. Uh, a concept that Washington had well, back in the 1750s. Uh, as early as the 1750s, Washington was already seeing us as an empire uh, unto ourselves and still seeing himself as a subject, but yet seeing this new thing uh, arising and manifesting itself. 
Um, was there a hand over here that I missed? Uh, anything else on, on Hamilton? We've got one minute left. Uh, we can finish with Hamilton or, or try to make sense of uh, common sense. Uh, Tom Payne. You know, as I understand it, Tom Payne just barely landed in the United States, right? In seven, didn't he just get there like late 75, early 76? Six months. And then he comes out with this incredible pamphlet. This was the Uncle Tom's cabin of its day. When, when, when Common Sense was published, people said, that's that. He's speaking our language. That's, that's it. He's got it right. He's got it right. Um, yeah, we don't have time to uh, talk about the, the critique of Hobbes in Hamilton, but that's on the top of 91, first column, if you guys uh, were interested in that. 